Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. We're heading off to Ireland now because there is a highway in County Clare. The story goes that when the highway first opened 20 years ago, there were lots of driver accidents on a particular strip of road. Many people thought it was because of a fairy fort. Now, fairy forts are the name given to circular archaeological remains of old forts, and they're still feared by many Irish people. Over the centuries, stories have abounded of people going into the forts and getting sick and dying mysteriously. Uh, many believed and still, still do that fairy curses are to blame. But is there actually something that science can tell us about these superstitions? Could there be another explanation? Uh, joining me from Leipzig, Leipzig in Germany is Dr. Patrick McCafferty, who's an authority on the subject of fairy forts in Ireland. Hello, Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us on Nightlife. Hi, Suzanne. Uh, good. I, I was very conscious that it's nighttime with you when I was listening to that song earlier. So, What did you think of it? Are you a vote thumbs up or thumbs down? I got a perfect song for going to sleep to. So. <laughs> All right. Well, those who are trying to drift off out there, hopefully they're no longer with us. They're sleeping soundly. <laughs> All right. So how many of these uh, fairy forts are there in Ireland? Um, there are about 35,000, uh, possibly up to 60,000 originally. And uh, so there are many, many of these around the country. I mean, I think Ireland has something like 35,000 square miles. So basically, you have one every square mile across Ireland. Um, and it's actually amazing. If you look at Google Maps um, or Google Earth, you you'll see these structures from the air and uh, you'll get these circles. Every few fields, there's another circle, then another one. And, um, you know, they're about 30 meters across, so 30 meters in diameter. And, um, yeah, many, many of them across the landscape. So when were they built and what for? They were built um, probably between the 6th and 9th century uh, AD, so um, over a thousand years ago. Um, They basically consist of a ditch and then a bank in the interior. So what you have, if you walk towards a ring fort, the first thing you'll face is a ditch and you have to, you know, step down a meter or two into a ditch and then climb up onto a bank and then go back off the bank and then you're in the middle. So these would have been good defensive structures. And it's thought that, you know, if it's 30 metres across, that's quite a, you know, a sizable yard. So people would have had, let's say, huts or houses in here, and they would have kept their cattle or their sheep or their livestock in the ring fort at night. Uh, back in medieval times, there were still wolves in Ireland. So that, you know, they were, they had practical function. And, uh, and they would also stop your neighbours stealing your sheep or your cattle as well. So. Yeah, good to keep those uh, neighbours out too. So I think uh, there was a belief for quite a long time that they were Danish built. Why was that? Um, yeah, they end up with this name Danesfort, and you get the, that name across the country as well. Um, I think this is fairly typical. The, the name first occurs, I think, with Geraldus Cambrensis. So he's with the Normans. He arrives in Ireland in the 12th century. He uses this name. So I think when the Normans arrived, they looked around the landscape and quite asked who built these. So they thought, oh, it must be the Danes. 
And this is something you find in other countries as well. For example, there's a Celtic uh, fort or a hill fort uh, near Trier in Germany, and it's known as a Hunenring. So, it, you know, people thought it was built built by the Huns. And um, but the dates don't mark match up archaeologically. The the suppose the Vikings appear here kind of, you know, eight hundred or so and or ninth century. So they're just at the end of this, whereas uh, the structures were built before that. Mm. So we're thinking they are basically you know people Irish people living on the land, building these for their for their families and themselves. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, I mean, if you that's what I find. If you look at Google Earth, you'll see you know, a ring fort, uh, fields, and then you'll see a farmhouse. And you almost have as many of these, um, you know, ring forts surviving as uh, farmhouses. And uh, so I, I think that's how we have to picture this. People weren't building, living in cities or villages. Instead, they were spread out across the landscape, um, often in sight of each other. So, you know, from one ring fort, you could look across to your neighbor's ring fort, uh, maybe a kilometre away. Um, but that's, you know, so you had... Lots of these across the landscape, isolated farmhouses, basically. Uh, Dr. Patrick McCavity is with us. He's an authority on the subject of fairy forts in Ireland. So up until now, this all sounds very sensible. You build a ring fort. The reasons seemed quite clear. So how do we get to the idea of the fairy fort? What's, what have fairies got to do with this? Um, that's a good question. I mean, um, what you have in superstition and folklore are this idea that the fairies are in the ring fort. And there are warnings that you you don't go to the ring fort, you don't stay there overnight. Um, There are also warnings that if you tamper with the ring fort, if you damage it or dig it up, uh, your cattle will fall sick, you will fall sick, you might die. So this idea that you will be punished uh, for messing with these places. Um, So that idea has been around in Ireland for at least a number of centuries. Um, and so that, you know, it's, it's quite, it's hard to know why that idea arose. Um, one of the possibilities is that you have, let's say, ancient sites, there are sites of pagans. So then Christians would have basically looked at these uh, pagan sites and thought, okay, they're, that's where people worshipped pagan gods. So perhaps there's a force there that I shouldn't go near. Uh, but that's not the case with these medieval structures because these were built at a time, uh, they were built by Christians essentially. So that I've often thought that that superstition that we have about these sites um, is difficult to explain. So were there really cases then of, of people dying of horrible diseases after entering these circles or, or was it was it a rumour, was it a, a folklore? I, I suspect a little bit of both. I... Um, I suspect that quite a lot of folklore, I think that the, the folklore would spread. So basically, let's say one person damages a ring fort and they die. And the result of it is that, that the idea that you would die because you damage a ring fort, that could spread. Um, so I suspect that some of this was rumor. Quite a lot of it was rumor, probably. But I keep coming across stories in the landscape. I used to visit archaeological sites in Ireland. And I'd go to a site and I'd get talking to the neighbours. And the neighbour often had these stories, like the farmer next door ploughed out the ring fort. And that night his two horses died and he died later that week. Um, or I had, you know, heard a story that, you know, from somebody who talked about his grandfather ploughing out one of these sites. So this is the 20th century. And the grandfather ended up covered in boils um, within a week. Uh, so there was this idea that uh, you'd be punished 
uh, were, you know, if you tampered with the sites. Yeah. And so these stories, were they spread across the centuries? Are you collecting them from a particular time period? Um, you have, I guess, stories of rainfall damage. Um, I think it's relatively recent. It's hard to find. We're lacking the evidence, like, when we go back further. Um, we certainly have evidence for of, you know, uh, let's say supernatural beings in older literature. Uh, so whenever we get like Irish mythology or what we used to call Irish mythology, we look at Irish stories that were written down in the medieval period. What we find there is that uh, we get these supernatural beings. Um, they're often linked with um, Neolithic passage tombs, for example. So Newgrange, uh, Bruna Bonia, that has, you know, it's the home of the Dagda, Oingus, uh, Boand. So you get these gods and goddesses who live in these sites. So that's, I guess, some of the background before Christianity arrives in Ireland. You have um, ancient gods and goddesses associated with underground. There was this idea, um, there's a book called the Ljavar Gavala Erin, and it describes invasions of Ireland, one invasion after the other. And the last invasion was by the Malaysians, and they defeated the Tuhedidanan, the people who used to live there. Um, and the Tuhedidanan were kind of godlike, but they were defeated. So they came to an agreement. The agreement was this, they would divide Ireland in two and uh, the Malaysians would take the land above the ground and the Tuhadadanan would take, you know, what was in Ireland below the ground. So you've always had this idea in Ireland that underneath the earth, underneath the land, there are supernatural beings. Wow. So if there was to be some kind of scientific answer to these stories that have appeared of, you know, the farmer who's covered in boils and the, the horses who die, what could the potential culprits be? Um, yeah, this is a, something that I questioned. I, I first came across this idea years ago. I was watching a documentary on um, Howard Carter and the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb. And it was the idea was put forward that Aspergillus niger, which is a black fungus, uh, that that might have been responsible for this idea of a curse. And I started thinking about the Irish landscape and, and this idea of a, a curse on ring forts in similar terms. And I thought about mold and I thought about a number of things. Um, and there could have been different diseases in the past. But then I thought, hold on, I need something that's long lasting, something that continues to be a threat, maybe centuries after an outbreak of disease. And that's when I hit upon the idea of anthrax. Um, so one of the characteristics of anthrax is it's a bacterium and it spreads in, in the body. But whenever the blood, whenever anthrax bacteria are exposed to oxygen, they form what are called endospores. And these endospores basically contain the DNA of the bacterium and they will infect somebody, um, you know, maybe even centuries later. And these spores are notoriously difficult to get rid of. I mean, people have talked about boiling them, burning them, and they still survive. Uh, so that was my, I kind of hit on this possibility that we might be dealing with something like anthrax. Yeah. So, so then I. Oh, yeah, yep. go on. So then I started doing lots of research on anthrax and started looking up, um, you know, the science of anthrax. And at that point, I have to say that I became a little bit worried that the CIA was probably opening up a file uh, because, you know, we were dealing with uh, 2001 and anthrax terrorism. And uh, but anyway, I um, what I 
came across was, you know, some references to diseases in Ireland that could have been anthrax. Um, I, it's not that I can prove it. What I can also find is that there were some instances of anthrax um, where people died of anthrax during the famine, for example. So I know that our anthrax existed in Ireland at some point. And uh, so what I did then was I looked back through the medieval annals and I was looking for diseases that could affect cattle and people or livestock and people, because that's one of the characteristics of anthrax. Um, there are other diseases, for example, rinderpest and rinderpest will affect cattle. Uh, and then, of course, you get diseases that affect humans. Uh, but um, so I looked out for some years where there were both. And I found a couple of these in the 8th century and again in the 10th century. And, um, and that sort of gave me a hint that, yeah, maybe we're dealing with anthrax here. Wow. So the, the endospores, I think that's what you, you called them, didn't you? So you're, you're saying literally, can they last for centuries? How, how big are they? What, what do they look like? Um, they're microscopic. Um, so I'm not quite sure. Probably, I don't know. I mean, really tiny. And I suppose they, you haven't wanted to I've get too a, up close and personal with one. Exactly. I'm a bit of a coward when it comes to <laughs> getting too exposed. Like, put me in an armchair and let me read about these things uh, rather than going out into the field and looking for anthrax. Um, but they, they'd be microscopic. And I think that's, you know, they're difficult to find, let's say. Uh, but I've seen it in you know, microscopic slides. So you have a bacterium and it's, you know, it's large. And then these little spores are, you know, maybe a 20th of the size of the bacterium. And and the bacterium would form for quite a lot of these. They're like little seeds, effectively. Um, with anthrax, it's interesting. I mean, there was an outbreak in Siberia, I think, in 2012. And what happened was that uh, reindeer had been had died in an outbreak in the 1940s. And the ground froze. And then 70 years later, the ground thawed because it was a warm spring or warm summer. And the anthrax became available again. And it, you know, it, it ended up killing at least one person. And so that was my theory that what would have happened is this. Um, people, let's say there's an anthrax outbreak in Ireland. Uh, people bring their cattle home in the evenings to be safe. And the cattle don't leave the next morning because the cattle are sick. So the cattle would then die in the ring fort and their blood would emerge, you know, in the ring fort when they're sick, et cetera. And then the, the endospores would be concentrated in the ring forts. So then years later, maybe 100 years later, somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to dig this place up. They would then encounter these endospores and, and get sick. And this would have reinforced the idea of a superstition. Uh, the idea that these ring forts are dangerous places. And I guess if you don't know about endospores or anthrax or those terms, then, you know, people would have used the fairies uh, or used supernatural beings as a way to explain uh, a hazard in the landscape. Mm. Um, I saw a really interesting documentary once about nuclear waste. Um, and how do we pass the idea that nuclear waste is dangerous down through the millennia ahead of us. Let's say you bury nuclear waste in a site, okay? You've got an old mine, you put the nuclear waste into it, and you put up a sign saying, do not enter, nuclear hazard. In a thousand years' time, people might not be able to read the sign. So then you use other forms, might not also work as well. Your symbols won't work either. And the researchers looking at this came to the conclusion that a myth would be the best way 
to pass the knowledge down right, through the generation. To share the warning through through myths. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Patrick McCafferty is my guest. He's an authority on the subject of fairy forts in Ireland, which is just an amazing story. Is I mean, does anthrax have a very large track record across Europe? I'm just wondering, for example, with the Black Death, could anthrax have been a culprit in some of the deaths attributed to uh, to the plague? Um, I, I sometimes think when it when we have plagues, um, that plagues often emerge because um, of hunger. And they often, you know, they take advantage of weakened immunity. And what you'll often find in a plague is that there's a whole set of symptoms and, and perhaps even a couple of diseases happening at the same time. Uh, so one of the possibilities put forward some years ago was that anthrax might be one of the causes in the Black Death, I think, because the, uh, the Black Death seemed to affect cattle as well as humans. I, but I think today we, we kind of know from archaeological evidence that um, bubonic plague or, or actually a pneumonic form of bubonic plague was probably the, the main culprit um, at that time. Uh, but I often wonder, it's, you know, it's a bit like a cold sore, a cold sore. So people get sick, they get the flu, and then they get this other virus kicks in as well, or, you know, other um, bacteria, meningitis, etc., kick in when somebody's immune system is low. So you can end up, you know, years later, looking back at these ancient diseases and the list of symptoms, and it's difficult to actually work out what was what. I suspect when it comes to the Black Death, we're primarily dealing with uh, bubonic plague or pneumonic plague. Mm -hmm. But there are diseases at an earlier time uh, that could be anthrax related. Um, the ninth century, the, the Vikings apparently were affected by a disease, and one of the symptoms of that was a form of dysentery. Uh, and so, you know, it was kind of like described in pretty awful terms of like basically blood running out your horse. And um, and that, I think, is, um, it seems like that was one of the symptoms of anthrax. So that could have been there in the ninth century and, and it would have been spreading through Europe. Um, so... Now, Patrick, I mean, you said you'd rather not get near anthrax or suspected anthrax if you could help it. But, I mean, have people been out and studied the sites and gone, well, can we actually somehow find some evidence that anthrax is here or, or has been here? Um, yes, they can. Um, there's uh, an archaeologist who excavated a medieval hospital outside Edinburgh at a place called Sotra, and he discovered anthrax spores uh, in the grounds of this medieval hospital. Um, so, And I think the trick is to look for places that are linked with disease, and that's where you're more likely to find these. Um, so, But it, it takes a considerable amount of looking in detail, uh, you know. I mean, you have to essentially do microscopic analysis of the soil. Um, probably helped a little bit easier or a little bit today through technology. I, I kind of, I think, you know, when it came to looking at um, evidence of COVID, for example, uh, people look at sewage samples and they do DNA analysis of the sewage samples and can use that. So my hope would be that some of these new technologies will make it easier to identify things like anthrax in the landscape. Yeah. Uh, do you think then the association of the sites with illness, fairies, go a long way to explain why so many of them are still there and why they haven't been built over or, or excavated? Um, yes. I mean, uh, people were afraid of the fairies. So, you know, they they had this idea. I think the disease aspect was, was there. The idea was that the, the fairies would punish you with disease. But I think people weren't as afraid of the disease as they were of the fairies. The fairies were these supernatural entities that were everywhere that could hear you. 
And, um, you know, and, and there was this belief in the fairies that continued after the introduction of Christianity. I mean, uh, lots of people, I think, until very recently would have believed in the fairies and the superstition would have helped preserve these sites. Um, today, I suspect we're probably a lot more arrogant. And uh, so you've had a number of people excavating or not excavating, but destroying ring forts. And this has become a real problem. Um, they are protected by law, but the laws don't seem strong enough. And very few people have actually been successfully prosecuted for damaging ring forts. So as when people used to believe in the fairies, they respected these places and then they stopped believing in fairies. And um, and, so, and so they felt, OK, and now I can plow up this ring fort. It's been in my way every time I plow my field. Uh, so let me just plow it out of the way. And um, and I think that's been happening more recently. Uh, but I hope that perhaps the, the fear of the law will stop people. And I also hope that perhaps um, maybe thinking twice about disease uh, will stop fear them as well. Fear of anthrax. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, it, It's funny. I have a, a friend who commented once on the fairies. He said, I mightn't believe in the fairies myself, but I wouldn't want to say that out loud. And, and there is this idea that when you have something like a supernatural entity that's responsible for the unexplained, you do not want to invite that entity to punish you uh, by being too arrogant, too proud. So, um, yeah, kind of a little bit respect for these traditions yeah. is um, um, advisable. Now, one of my texts says, anthrax, no, fairy spells, yes. Um, but also Latif. Now, Latif, your uh, SMS has been cut off, but I think you want to ask why Ireland seems to have so many myths, perhaps, and compared to some other countries. Do you think that's right? I mean, you've got the leprechauns as well. We, we have the leprechauns. Um, and the leprechauns, I mean, we, we kind of, they're relatively recent in folk lore terms. Like if you go back to medieval texts, they don't really talk about leprechauns. Um, but I've come across one tale, and I kind of wonder if this was the origin of the leprechaun. And the story has that Finn McCool had what was known as an abak. And an abak is described as a dwarf-type character, a little human, who lived on Finn's shoulder and would be in his jacket and would climb from his jacket into his pocket and onto his shoulder again. And I remember thinking, hold on, this sounds very like a monkey. And, and then lo and behold, archaeologists discovered the skull of, a, of an ape, a Barbary ape from North Africa. Uh, you find him at Gibraltar in North Africa. So they discovered one of the skulls at an archaeological site in Armagh. And um, and I often thought, wow. So if you had, you know, people with monkeys as pets um, and not quite knowing what this was, they might have thought it was a small human or a small type of human. And, and that could have gone on to become the leprechaun. Um, but one of the key explanations for why Ireland has so much uh, mythology, let's say, compared to a lot of other countries, was that we weren't colonized by the Romans to the same extent. And... You'll find this in terms of language. Um, most languages in Europe are based on Latin. So whatever languages existed in France, in Spain, in Portugal, in, um, you know, in other parts of Europe, didn't continue after they were taken over by Rome. I think the only place where the, uh, the exception to that is, is Wales. The Welsh kept their language somehow. And, and I think with a lot of tradition goes with language. So when you have um, a way to pass, you know, stories in down through a language and you don't have to translate it into another language. 
then you get the probably greater preservation of stories. And certainly in Ireland, we have a remarkable tradition. I mean, we we find um, we have lots of medieval tales and, and there's a huge argument about are these myths or are these a form of medieval fantasy fiction? I mean, is it somebody like, you know, the author of Game of Thrones writing stories in the medieval period and making everything up? Or do we have things that go back to in more ancient times? And I would tend to argue for the latter. I think that um, we have a number of stories linked to Newgrange, for example. Uh, Newgrange is a passage tomb that's five th- over 5,000 years old. So in medieval times, that is almost 4,000 years later, the, the monks are writing about Newgrange. And there's an awareness of this site. There are legends and tales of gods linked to this site. So, so traditions get passed down. There was possibly because they were related to religion. Um, I think religion is a great way to pass uh, tales down and to pass knowledge from one generation to the next. Because if it's if a story is in a religion, you don't tamper with it. You don't make up new fantasy fiction versions of it. Um, and that only happens later when people stop believing in the key gods at the hearts of the stories. Yeah, now I know, Patrick, I mean, we did something on this a few weeks ago that just increasingly there's this tradition of uh, stories which everybody thought were myths, uh, you know, these oral stories that have been handed down. I mean, we've got some from the, you know, the Aboriginal dreaming here. It turns out these stories very much late, relate to uh, geological changes that were happening in the country, to rising sea levels and all those kinds of things. So often you go back and you go, these stories actually fit with some of the things that were happening. And we're going to run out of time before too long. I just want to know, in Ireland, those who believe in the wee folk or the fairies, is there a concept of what they look like? I mean, do people actually have a, a vision of what an Irish fairy is? Um, I suspect a large part of this would be influenced by images of leprechauns. So the leprechaun was like a little cobbler uh, wearing a you know green and um, you know, with a pot of gold, etc. And I suspect some of that artwork, it very much influenced the idea of what the fairies looked like. But if you go back to older stories, the fairies could appear a, basically very much like humans. So they would appear in, you know, human form. Uh, these were more supernatural entities. These were gods appearing as humans and, uh, you know, who had magical powers. Another form was the banshee. The banshee was this a uh, fairy woman, um, often depicted a hag form, so much older um, but she, and warning of death. So she would give a cry that would warn of death. Uh, another form would be the Ashling. So the Ashling is this personification of Ireland as a beautiful woman and, you know, becomes a subject of poetry uh, for centuries. And um, in many ways has that embodiment of the Shiad, the, the, you know, the, the supernatural beings. And I sometimes think that the word fairy is unfortunate because we have images in our heads of what fairies look like. Yeah, and, I um, picture little tiny females wearing tutus and ballet slippers actually when I think of fairies. Patrick, I'm sure we could talk a lot longer, but I'm afraid time is against us. Thank you so much for joining us and, and telling us about the uh, these fairy forts in Ireland. It's been fascinating. Okay, thanks, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Patrick McCafferty, who is an authority on the subject of fairy forts in Ireland. 
You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.